You've seen him as a late night host, a podcast host, a stand-up comic, and of course an actor and showrunner, but for the first time you're finally able to read him. Guys, I am so thrilled and honored to be interviewing the Pete Holmes today, and that interview is coming up right after this. This is Book Circle Online, featuring in-depth discussion, insight, news, and commentary on all the world's leading book titles and their authors. And now, Book Circle Online. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Book Circle Online. As I mentioned at the top, we are your online broadcast network that features book discussions and author discussions. We discuss everything from nonfiction to fiction to memoirs. And today we are in fact discussing a memoir with the author himself, Pete Holmes. If you don't know Pete Holmes, you definitely should, but he's wonderful. He's a comic, a writer, a cartoonist, and he calls himself a Christ-leaning spiritual seeker. And he's a podcast host. His wildly popular podcast, You Made It Weird, is a comedic, a comedic exploration of the meaning of life, featuring guests from Deepak Chopra to Elizabeth Gilbert to Seth Rogen and Gary Shandling. Pete also also created and show ran and starred in a semi-autobiographical HBO show called Crashing, which he executive produced alongside Judd Apatow. He's a stand-up with three hour-long television specials and numerous late-night appearances, and he continues to sell out regularly to sold-out crowds. Pete, I'm so excited to have you today. Thanks for having me, Jeff. It's nice to be here. It's great for you to be here as well. I must candidly also admit to the audience that I'm a big Pete Holmes fan as well, so I'm going to do my best to keep this professional, not fanboy too much. But um, I discovered you first uh, through your stand-up, actually. I feel like I'm the perfect age to have been watching Best Week Ever when you were featured on that show. Um, But then I became a true fan of you through your podcast. You made it weird. So it's just really, really great to have you today. Oh, thanks. That's that's crazy. That's a... 20 years ago now. I'm kind of exactly the right age to have like discovered all of the art I did when it would make sense for me to be that age. Because even right now, I feel like I'm around the same age and life stage as your character on Crashing. So it's very interesting for me to be talking to you today. Yeah, no, that's cool, man. I love that. I also have to admit to our listeners, too, reading this book, I finished it, I devoured it in about two days. I grew up in a similarly Protestant, evangelical-leaning household, and I've had a similar journey with spirituality. So there was moments in this book when I sort of felt like I was reading my own autobiography, which made this a very interesting read. So again, I will do my best for listeners to keep this as professional and not fanboy as possible. But <laughs> Pete, if I may, I'd love for you to start with a reading. Um, I'm going to have you start on page six. You very quickly talk about the household you grew up in, and I was surprised by how candidly you discussed sort of the conflict-oriented home you grew up in. I feel like you've touched on it some in your podcast, but not with this much candor. I'm going to have you start on page six, where you describe to your readers sort of what a typical night looked for looked like for you. If you would start with after dinner, that would be great. Sure. Yeah, it would be my pleasure. After dinner, my mom would clean while we watched TV until we heard the sound of my dad's oil truck pulling into the gravel driveway. That was our cue. Without speaking, my brother and I would turn off the television and head upstairs, closing our bedroom doors behind us, feeling like townspeople nailing boards to our windows in preparation for a coming storm. The next hour or so was a butthole clinch. It started right away and had a pattern to it, like a Slayer record. This was before noise-canceling headphones or white noise machines or financial freedom and the ability to call an Uber and go to a hotel for the evening. So I just listened, their yells bleeding through the walls, my dad's voice the subwoofer, my mom's voice higher, easier to hear. On a particularly bad night, I broke protocol and went into my brother's room 
where I was surprised to find him doing exactly what I had been doing, standing motionless, head down, holding his breath, and trying to assess the level of danger. My parents' fights never got physical. There were no plates breaking or bruises. But we were kids. To us, Greek gods were throwing lightning bolts downstairs, and we didn't know what to do other than wait it out, frozen, like dogs waiting for fireworks to stop. We knew the fight was over when my mom would come upstairs and my dad would turn the TV back on, loud, and would hear my mom go into her bedroom and cry. This wasn't like a gentle weeping. It was full, heaving, dramatic sobs. Heartbroken and with no one else doing anything, I would go down the hall and climb onto her bed and hold her until she calmed down. Just me and my mom lying on the comforter entwined, her kissing the top of my head and calling me her little peacekeeper. Thank you so much. Um, that's beautifully written. And it's interesting as someone who's, um, you know, grown up with your voice in my head weekly, I'm sort of not used to this more somber, melancholic approach to describing your life. I feel like on the podcast, you kind of affectionately describe your dad as like an emotionally closed off Bostonian, but this was surprisingly candid. And I'd love for <laughs> Peta, I've heard you do that Peta voice before on the show. Um, yeah. But I'd love to yeah. hear you sort of talk about what it was like to write that passage specifically and sort of really go back there yeah it was an interesting uh place for us to start because that was the passage that like you know i probably read this book as i was editing and as i was writing dozens and dozens of times and that was a passage particularly the part about waiting for fireworks to stop like dogs waiting for fireworks to stop that was a line that would make me stop every time like when i was reading it it would it would overwhelm me and, and sort of make me uh, feel emotional and that and obviously as a comedian that's not usually the type of emotion that I'm after I'm trying to elicit joy and, and laughter and, and sort of usher people into a good time <laughs> but with a book like this it was it was really important to kind of explain the why not just why I became a comedian but why I was so drawn to the church and when I talked to my parents about this uh, my parents are sort of weird. They 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 just liked that they were included. If that makes sense. <laughs> like I I thought I thought maybe they would have a problem with it or whatever. But I, they they they're sort of performers themselves. So they just liked. My dad, for example, said he liked the beginning of the book the best. And I was like, <laughs> that is so funny. Like it's the only part that's about you. So like that's the part that he liked the most. But I was relieved. You know, I was relieved that he liked it. But in a book about um, religion, I wanted to explain why I was why I was going into the church and why I loved it so much when I got there, and it wouldn't really be complete without explaining why I didn't really feel comfortable at home all the time and why I didn't feel comfortable at school all the time, and then and then it's almost it should be I hope almost a relief for the reader when we get to church we like know that uh, things are, are relatively safe now. I mean, they might be philosophically damaging, but like pretty, pretty safe, friendly, good people. Mm. Yeah, I think you really painted that narrative nicely for the audience, but it was just interesting. I Even as someone who feels like I know you from your show, it was sort of a different side to your home life than I'd ever realized. So I appreciate you being so candid there. I have to ask, it's interesting when you- I think that's what, that's what books are, you know, that's what books are good for. I'm sorry to interrupt. No, I was please. Just saying, like, that's why a book. I, I didn't just want to, like, transcribe things I had said in stand-up or on the podcast. I wanted to be like, this, that's almost, like, too personal to share mm. 
and uh, on a podcast, maybe it makes people uncomfortable. You know, right. I remember when I did the audio book, I, I was like apologizing to the engineer. I was like, it gets funnier. <laughs> it gets funnier. Like it works out. It's okay. Um, but that's what a book is. Like the books that I love by comedians, like the only part I really remember of Born Standing Up is that when he was writing about touring and when he was writing about his difficult family life. So that's, that's all. That's what I wanted to do. I wanted to follow that tradition. Well, to your credit and to our listeners, even if you feel like you really do know Pete from his show, you did give us a different side to who you are and what your journey has been. So it is a valuable, a valuable addition to sort of your, your journey and your sort of oeuvre of art yeah. for your listeners. So we appreciate that. It, I have to ask you, Pete, it's interesting you are so candid about your relationship with Val and you know, you paint your life as this really warm sort of love filled marriage. But a lot of times people who grew up in conflict oriented homes like this discuss some of those patterns leaking into their own lives. I'm, it's interesting to me that it seems like your approach to relationships, even with your ex-wife that you describe in the book feels so terrified of conflict and avoidant of the types of environments you grew up in. Do you agree with that? I do. I, I think there are sort of two ways you can go. One, one is you sort of pick up the mantle and continue um, relationships in the way that they were modeled for you. Um, but what's interesting is that like my mom, even though their, their marriage was not great, just like personality wise, they weren't like great personalities for each other, but like my mom mirrored a different, um, thing, you know, she mirrored a lot of unconditional love and interest. And, you know, she, she taught me how to communicate and she taught me how to, uh, listen. I mean, I, I think people might think that's funny because I interrupt a lot on my podcast, but she, I, I don't interrupt Val <laughs> in the same way because I'm not trying to host the show. But, um, you know, she, she taught me a different model of love. So I sort of had two concurrent models. One was what not to do, and then one was sort of what, what to do. I sort of joked that it was, it was inappropriate. Like, my mother and I almost had, like, a, like a marriage. Like, it was almost like it was, um, you know, sort of blurred the lines of, like, friendship and, like, almost romantic <laughs> love for each other. But there was a good side of that. Like it, it taught me how to eventually get uh, learn how to be a good husband and stuff. I think mm. I think that might have been where I got it. Uh, yeah, I mean, you're candid about your uh, complicated and interesting relationship with your mother in this book, which we also appreciate as readers. Um, another thing I really enjoyed yeah. as as just a comedy nerd, it was really fun for me to hear you talk about sort of nostalgically your relationships with other. Now, huge comedians like Mulaney and Kumail Nanjiani and Emily Gordon and Amy Schumer. And um, I'm wondering, when you were sort of, all of you were on the cusp of your big careers, was there anyone in particular where you just saw the bud of their incredible talent? You mean like watched it happen? I mean, I think that sort of happened with Mulaney. And Mulaney is a little bit like Dave Chappelle in that way that I don't think anybody was, um, in fact, I know that anybody that knew him, um, nobody was surprised that he blew up. We were always just sort of waiting for the world to sort of catch up and, under and, and recognize that he was 
um, one of the greatest comedians ever. Um, so I, I remember all of us sort of agreeing on it. In, in a world where stand-up can be competitive and there can be haters, I don't remember Mulaney having any haters. And I, I, I can't remember anybody being brash enough to compete with him. It was more just like, you know, you saw people like uh, Nick Kroll, who's a dear friend, being like, how do we collaborate with this great force? There was certainly no, you can't beat Mulaney in a foot race. You know what I mean? He's, <laughs> he's going to beat you every time. <laughs> Interesting. I think that's really well said. If I may, Pete, I'd love to have you just do one more reading for us. Um, as you guys know from the title of yeah. the book, it's called Comedy, Sex, God. That's the book we're talking about today, which on one level is, of course, Pete himself. He is a comedy sex god. But on the other level, those <laughs> words um, represent the three major themes and sort of chapters of his life that he describes. I was very moved by a... Um, anecdote that you recalled about returning to your home church. I think a lot of evangelical Protestants like myself could really relate to this experience where when you're attending a church that you grew up in, there's a really complicated mix of emotions. On one hand, there's sort of a warm, nostalgic feeling for re-entering a community that helped raise you. But on the other hand, it's a really kind of concrete marker of how you've changed and it can reintroduce maybe potentially traumatic moments from your past that the church might have potentially instilled. So to contextualize this reading you're about to give mm-hmm. to us, you're talking to your pastor um, about your career, and you know, presumably he's seen some of your stand-up or some of your footage, which um, hilariously, compared to most stand-up comedy, really is kind of clean and tame. But he sort of passive-aggressively yeah. tells you that he doesn't think that you're using your spiritual talents for good. And... Um, I hope that's a good enough introduction to this reading, but you had some some choice words and thoughts about your pastor's reaction to the way that you're using your talents to pursue a career in comedy. If I may, Pete, I'd love to have you start at the bottom of 111 and then just finish out that chapter starting at I Considered Telling Paul. Sure. I considered telling Paul exactly what I thought, that God and life and sex were complicated, and that exploring those ideas in humorous ways often felt beautiful and unifying, and sometimes reminded me of Jesus having dinner with the sinners and the tax collectors, loving and breaking bread with them instead of offering judgment. I considered telling him that equating holiness with not swearing, saying freck instead of fuck, wouldn't fool any sort of God worth believing in. But instead, finding no warmth in his icy blue eyes, I quickly searched for and found the combination of words I needed to say in order to end the conversation as soon as possible. We have a lunch reservation, I said, and pried my hand from his. And that was the last time I went back to my home church, the the straw that broke the camel's back. I was out in the world, pursuing my dream, speaking my truth, using my talents, summoning the courage to share my fears and insecurities in front of strangers, to entertain them and leave them happier and feeling less alone. And this guy thought I had fallen from grace because I occasionally said dirty words. Well... Fuck that. I never went back. Man, it's a, <laughs> such a beautifully written passage. I, I was very moved when I read that section of the book, so I just sort of wanted to share that with our readers. Um, oh, I love that. Yeah, I, I'm wondering, like, you're candid in this book, in this passage, and in your career about the gulf that you see between what Jesus's mission seems to be when he was here versus how the American church is living out those values. I'd love to just kind of hear you speak on that a little bit, maybe for listeners who haven't heard you sort of pontificate on that. Yeah, you know, I mean, I think religion at its deeper levels is about unity. It's about bringing us together. And, you know, I, I would say the summation of most 
faiths is uh, the realization that you're not who you think you are. Um, it's, it's learning to identify as awareness or as consciousness, that's what science would call it, or as a soul, that's what Christians would call it, as the Atman, which is what Hindus would call it. But you basically want to be something behind your story. So you have your, your false self as Frung, uh, Frung, Jung and Freud combined, Frung, uh, would talk about it, which is our storyline, which is who we are, where we're from, our race, our gender, our likes and our dislikes. But people like uh, Christ and others, Buddha, are, are inviting us to a deeper level of awareness of what's going on here. And so often, uh, you know, religion has sort of become about um, being nice and being uh, ethical, when really what I think these, these beings were doing was they were trying to uh, invite you into an inner transformation. And the result of that inner transformation, when you uh, reach enlightenment or conversion or salvation here and now, when you sort of wake up to your true self, um, the result of that awakening is often ethical behavior, is you will be nice. You, hmm. you probably won't lie. You probably won't steal. You probably won't cheat. You won't hurt other people because you know that that's you. You know, you're only hurting yourself. You're hurting the one thing that all of this is. But often in church, uh, it's, at least in my church, we sort of put the cart before the horse and we like taught people to behave ethically sort of by willpower, even though you, you want to say a dirty word, you say an alternative word. So, so you're like, you know, kind of skating by the principal at the school, which was like our model of God, or like a lifeguard. You just don't want to get kicked out of the pool and kicked into hell. So I, I'm sort of offering in the book a, a different, but I think a more accurate um, message, which is that it's about an inner transformation. It's about truth, and truth is truth, whatever tradition or practice or method you, you discover it with. And it's about changing the fundamentals of how you perceive reality and your place within it. And uh, that is certainly inclusive of our flaws or our shortcomings or our quirks. Let's just say quirks, it's less judgmental. And that it's all in the game. And being a comedian is in the game. And being whatever it is, uh, one of my favorite passages is Jesus says, let the weeds grow with the wheat. You know, don't try and pick the weeds. You'll end up picking the wheat. So he's sort of saying all of life belongs. Every, every part of it belongs. And it's sort of like, we're in school, and we need to take the curriculum, not resist it and pretend that we've had our heart changed. We need to, we need to take the curriculum until our hearts actually do change. Mm. And that's, that's, to me, true spirituality. And that's a very exciting message for anybody, even if you're an atheist. That is, that is a journey that we can go on uh, together and talk about. And I find it useful to use symbols and stories to get closer to it, but you certainly don't have to. Well, you talk about your realization in this journey, particularly being guided by Ram Das and Maharaji. You spent a lot of time in the book talking about this sort of new chapter of your spiritual life, particularly in relationship with Ram Das and Ra Maharaji. Can you quickly, for our listeners, kind of contextualize who these guys are? And then I have one more follow-up question after that. Yeah, Ram Das, I mean, there's a lot of parallels between he and I. He, he was, uh, he's an Aries, he's from Boston. Um, he was, this is where the parallels are going to stop. He was a professor at Harvard, <laughs> but, you know, he was like an achiever. He's like a, a upwardly mobile, um, Jewish good boy who, uh, really wanted to please people and do what was right. 
And then he took uh, mushrooms for the first time when he was 31. I also took mushrooms for the first time when I was 31. And both of us in that experience had that um, nudging towards the idea that we're not who we think we are. What Ramdas did with it um, was he went to India after like a, a pretty long years of experimenting with psychedelics with Timothy Leary, who people know. Um, he got tired of the up and down and the up and down and the up and down of experimenting with psych psychotropic chemicals. And he wanted to find the spirit behind those experiences and, and wanted to find the spirit that those experiences was pointing him to. So he went to India uh, and met the man that uh, became his guru. And, and it's important to notice that, note that a guru isn't um, a teacher. I, I would consider Ramdas a teacher, but a guru is the teaching. So just their, their very being has sort of transcended duality in its entirety. And just sort of hanging out with these people was most of the message. It wasn't, it wasn't like lectures or something. It was a uh, heart-opening frequency coming from these people. And this is what I think was going on with Christ, by the way. I think it's the exact same situation. Christ became the Christ. He became one with everything that is, and that's, that's what Christ is. Um, it's not just a title or a last name. It's, it's, it's a unified consciousness with everything. So he saw backstage, and he saw the puppet show and the strings, and he started telling people about it. Uh, similarly with Maharaji, that's what happened with him and Ramdas. So uh, he got the name Ramdas. He was Richard Albert. He got the name Ramdas. He came back to the States, and that's when he started teaching um, what used to be exclusively a Far Eastern uh, religion and a philosophy, Hinduism and some Buddhism. And anytime you see Be Here Now or a yoga studio that teaches pranayama or, or meditation, it's because, uh, basically, because Ramdas brought that over. Other people did that, too. Yogananda did that. But, like, Ramdas was part of that movement in the 60s and 70s of sort of westernizing these ideas. And, and then decades later, people like me and uh, Duncan Trussell, you know, discovered him and have started, uh, you know, ingesting it and sharing it on our podcasts uh, again. Um, so that, that's who he is. So he's, he's like my, my great teacher. Absolutely. That I a lot in the book. And what I want to follow up with that, Pete, is I, um, this is a bit of a delicate question, so I want to try to phrase it as eloquently as I can. But there were times when I read about your reverence for Ram Dass and almost felt like it was in contradiction to your resistance to subscribing to an organized religion. When I was reading about these Ram Dass retreats, it almost felt like its own form of church. And do you ever have to guard yourself against subscribing so intensely to Ram Dass's practices that you're not just re-entering? a structured church that you're so reticent to re-enter. Yeah, I, I hope in the book that that comes across that I was very, very cautious of that, and I, I remain cautious of that. Um, I mean, it was Ramdas, after all, that taught me that all methods, all methods that are sort of taking us to this uh, inner transformation are traps. He says that, all methods are traps. But uh, we use the method, we sort of let it trap us uh, in the hopes that when we have the transformation, the method will burn up, you know, it'll sort of self-destruct on its way out. And that's sort of how I look at the, the satsang or the group that meet uh, sort of under Ram Dass and under Maharaja and all that sort of stuff. But like when I was there, I gave a talk at the last retreat and I kept sort of reminding everybody and reminding ourselves that it's not about the group. It's not about Ram Dass. It's not even about Maharaji or Christ. It's about 
you. It's about the, the phenomenon of consciousness that is looking out your eyeballs right now. And it's in Be Here Now, and it's in all of Ram Dass's stuff where he talks about God, guru, and self are one. All of this is just a game. All of this is just a dance. I found a group that I like to hang out with uh, that feels very free and open, and there's no dogma, and there's, no, there's nothing that makes me uh, uncomfortable about it, so it works for me. But at the end of this, all methods need to burn up. Uh, I, I write in the book that the Saint uh, Ramana Maharshi, not Mahar- Maharaji, but Ramana Maharshi, it's a different guy, said that your method is like a stick that you stoke the fire of your consciousness with. But once the flames are high enough, you throw the stick in too. Mm. So I'm not attached to the group. My book isn't about trying to sell a group or a philosophy to anybody. I want people to be free. I want people to be spacious. I want people to identify with their deeper selves because that's where I found peace and that's where I found joy. And I really don't care how they do it. It could be photos of the, from the Hubble telescope. It could be meditation. It could be your church. I don't care. I want people to be free and I want them to get on with it. Instead of worshiping a symbol system or even worshiping a teacher, which you're rightly cautious that that could be happening with me, that's not what it's about. It's about something changing inside of you. And you feel it when it happens. I mean, the reason it's called enlightenment is because I keep getting lighter. You know what I mean? Mm. I, I get lighter and more free and more spacious. And that's how I know it's working for me. It's not because I can quote Ramdas or I, I know all his works and I know what he'd say about this and that or that. That's all just play. And, and you can play whatever game you want. The point is to get, get where you're going. Dare I say, get into it, Pete. Is that what we're looking for? <laughs> the point is to get into it. <laughs> That's right. Um, Pete, I wish I had more time to talk with you because obviously I'm a fan of your work and I'm a huge nerd for this stuff, but I promise you guys, if you want um, even a more deep, enlightened take on that, feel free to pick up Pete's book. It's called Comedy Sex God. It just came out. I read it in about two days and I couldn't put it down. And if you're a fan of Pete, I promise you you'll like it. But even if you're not, I assure you that you will. Is that Brody in the background, Pete? I think I hear him. Yeah, I... Yep, I'm letting my podcast guest in. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Well, Sorry I'll let you that. go, Pete, but thank you so, so much for your time. One quick question. We have a ton of TV fans. Any chance for a crashing movie? Uh, you know, it's on the table. It's, it's always something that we could um, look into, but we sort of have to know what the story would be that would, be, that would justify kind of cranking everything back up. I, I know people want to do it, and I know we could do it, and we're just sort of waiting for the, the right idea. Well, I really appreciate it, Pete. And I can't thank you enough for talking to our Book Circle Online fans today. Um, if people want to find you online, please let them know My where pleasure. they can do that. Well, it's Pete Holmes on Twitter, Pete Holmes on Instagram. And you can get the book on Amazon or harperwave.com slash Pete Holmes. And I really hope people like it. I, I worked on it for three years. Uh, so I hope people enjoy it. Pete Holmes, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it, Jeff. Yep. See you later. All right, guys. That was uh, Pete Holmes on our Book Circle Online interview. I'm uh, excited to hear that he's jumping off the phone to record his own podcast, You Made It Weird, of which I'm a huge fan. Um, But, guys, that's all we got for today. Again, my name is Jeff Graham. If you want to find me online, you can do that at Jeffrey C. Graham. One more time, I'm holding up Pete's book. For those who are watching, it's called Comedy Sex God. I loved it. I devoured it. And I highly recommend it to you. Whether or not you're a fan of Pete, if you're interested in well-written comedic memoirs and surprisingly nuanced takes on 
spirituality. You will truly love this book. If you guys want to see more of what I'm doing, I do some of these interviews, um, hopefully not in such a uh, embarrassingly fanboy fashion with other talent, but you can see some of my red carpet interviews online. Particularly, I think fans of this might enjoy the interviews I've done with the cast of Silicon Valley. I did get to interview Pete's friend, Kumail Nanjiani, as well as Zach Woods. And Martin Starr in an interview that's um, done pretty well online, so you can check those out. I also am proud and ashamed to admit that I host our Bachelorette After Show on our sister network, After Buzz TV. So feel free to check that out. And in the meantime, guys, this has been Book Circle Online. Check out some of our other content. We have some amazing other author interviews. And um, it's been fun for me to host and join you today. So check us out, and we'll see you next time here on Book Circle Online. From managing editor Jason Squamata, executive producers Maria Menounos, Phil Svitek, and Kevin Undergaro, we would like to thank you for tuning in to Book Circle Online. For more discussion, go to bookcircleonline.com. And if you have comments, questions, or book title suggestions, write us at info at bookcircleonline.com. I'm Sir Richard Wentworth, and this is Book Circle Online. BCO, join the circle.